Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My, my name is Dan Eikenson. I am the uh, Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, and I will be your, your moderator today. I appreciate your braving the weather to get here. Uh, I promise that you will be rewarded for your efforts. We have an excellent panel. Uh, and you're not alone. Uh, it, it might uh, seem that uh, there's few in here, but uh, we, uh, we are actually live on the Internet as well, so we're being joined by hundreds, if not thousands, of other people. And uh, this event will be archived and accessible uh, through Cato.org if you want to view it later or if anybody else wants to take a look at it down the road. Um, I want you to think of me more as a table setter today rather than a moderator. Uh, the, the, I have too many opinions to be viewed as a moderator, so I defy that, uh, that description. Besides, I think it's unlikely that there's going to be a lot of dissent uh, from this panel. Uh, our, our goal here is, is simply to describe what has transpired uh, over the past year. So I'm going to start by setting the table with a chronology of events, uh, sort of a 30,000-foot view of, of what has happened. Uh, then th that'll take about 10 minutes. And then I've asked the speakers to speak for about 20, maybe 25 minutes to go into some details. And then we will open up the floor to, to Q&A. And I'm going to start by introducing our speakers, both of them now. And when I'm done giving this introduction, I will invite David to speak. Uh, David Skeel will be our first speaker, and he is the Samuel uh, Arsht Professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, he is author of a couple of books. One, Icarus in the Boardroom, The Fundamental Flaws in Corporate America and Where They Came From, published by Oxford University Press in 2005. Also, Debt's Dominion, A History of Bankruptcy Law in America, published by Princeton University Press in 2001, and he has also published numerous articles on bankruptcy, corporate law, Christianity and law, and other topics. Uh, his recent articles include Assessing the Chrysler Bankruptcy, very topical here. Uh, that will be published in the Michigan Law Review, but it is accessible uh, and downloadable from the Social Science Research Network right now, and I highly encourage you to, to take a look at that. Uh, he's also written... Uh, 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 with, uh, with Ken Ayotte, Bankruptcy or Bailouts in the Journal of, of Corporation Law. That is also forthcoming in 2010. And Professor Skeel has written commentaries for numerous papers, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the, the Weekly Standard, Financial Times, LA Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, and other publications. So among other related topics, David is going to focus his remarks today uh, on the implications of the government's commandeering of the bankruptcy process uh, in, in the Chrysler case, uh, while explaining how normal Chapter 11 procedures would have worked just fine for the auto companies. We're very pleased to have Professor Skeel with us today. Our second speaker will be Richard Murdoch. Richard is the treasurer of the state of Indiana. He was elected to that office in November 2006, bringing with him 30 years of business experience as an executive in the Hoosier energy, construction, and environmental industries. Uh, Richard served two terms as the county commissioner in Vanderburg County, where he gained a reputation as a results-oriented leader by setting goals and measuring progress. Uh, Richard serves as Indiana's chief investment officer, where he seeks to maximize the return on the state's, government, uh, state's investment portfolio and serves on a total of 13 boards uh, and commissions in his official position. This year, uh, Richard has been at the center of the national debate on the automobile industry bailout, as he pursued a case on behalf of Indiana pensioners all the way to the US, U.S. Supreme Court. Currently, that, that, uh, that case is on appeal, and the court will likely decide in early 2010 whether or not to take the case. 
As a result of the Chrysler case, Richard has frequently been cited for his willingness to stand up for the rule of law, the U.S. Constitution, and individual property rights, and that's really why he's here today, uh, in addition to the fact that he is an articulate and impassioned speaker on behalf of those institutions. Richard holds a master's degree in geology from Ball State University and a bachelor's degree from Defiance College in Ohio. I strongly encourage you to read the petition uh, filed with the Supreme Court uh, asking for a writ of certiorari uh, in this case. The problem is that it's 276 pages, so you have to spend a little bit of time, but it, is, uh, it really lays out all the claims very cleanly, very cogently, and, and given all the sordid details and some of the shady characters and dirty tricks uh, that, uh, that are documented therein, you might find that you're actually reading the plot to John Grisham's next book. Uh, in the meantime, we have Richard here, and uh, his recent testimony was available out there, as was uh, Professor Skeels. And, uh, of course, he will shine more light on how the government trampled the rights of pension fund owners in his testimony today. So now we can start my 10-minute clock. Uh, the Cato Institute has been interested in this topic. Uh, we are a think tank that is devoted to these institutions of individual liberty, limited government, and free markets. And the auto fiasco was a front to all of those institutions. Our scholars here have been outspoken against the auto bailout, the, the, the bankruptcy process uh, that transpired, as well as the financial uh, bailout. Lawyers here at our Center for Constitutional Studies have filed an amicus brief uh, in support of Richard's petition uh, to get the Supreme Court to review the appellate body's decision in the bankruptcy case. Uh, Richard and David will have a lot more to say about the, the, the legal proceedings and bankruptcy law more generally. So let me move on to some general table setting. And I want to start with a quote from President Obama last week. I'm sorry, last month. Last month, President Obama spoke at a gathering of GM workers in Ohio, and he said, your survival and the success of our economy depended, depended, past tense, on making sure that we got the U.S. auto industry back on its feet. I think that is an inaccurate and myopic view of, of what, what's going on here. It's inaccurate because the industry was never really off its feet. Uh, we had two firms who were in some trouble, and the jury is still out on their longer-term viability. Uh, it's myopic uh, because the statement reflects a cavalier disregard for the many more problems created by the Bush-Obama interventions and the collateral damage that has been done by what I'm calling uh, a modern-day Sherman's March to the Sea. So I'm going to proceed chronologically here and uh, just to give a little flavor of what happened. Three weeks from today, or yesterday, November 5th, will mark the one-year anniversary of the unofficial beginning of the auto industry crisis. That is a date in which the Center for Automotive Research, uh, a consulting firm in, in, in Detroit, published a paper projecting that 3 million U.S. jobs were at stake uh, unless the government acted with dispatch uh, to, to, to ensure the continued operation of all of the big three auto producers. Detroit's media blitz was on at that point. But the projection of 3 million job losses was predicated on a fantastical worst-case scenario that if one of the big three went down, uh, other uh, firms in the supply chain would also liquidate, which would put pressure on the other big two who would also go down, sending the entire supply chain into demise, which would then undermine and send into decline the, the foreign nameplate producers. So in other words, 3 million jobs would be lost if the entire U.S. auto industry went out of business and liquidated. The report oddly gave no consideration to the much more likely event that one or perhaps two of the big three 
file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization. But the me mainstream media obliged the script. Uh, they elevated the automobile industry crisis to the top of the news cycle for, for the next month. And they helped mold the debate into a uh, Wall Street versus Main Street uh, characterization, a very simplistic, polarizing dichotomy. They, the notion that, that, that some financial institutions had taken risks, that they had lost big, and that they were rescued by Washington became the prevailing argument for bailing out the auto companies, even as evidence was surfacing that the financial bailout was, was misguided, uh, and despite compelling evidence that the automakers were, were unworthy of, of any assistance. Public uh, opinion was initially sympathetic, uh, as you'll recall, to the mainstream main street characterization, but it changed instantly uh, when the CEOs of the big three arrived in Washington, tin cups in hand, uh, aboard their own private corporate jets. Uh, Detroit, uh, the, the media turned on Detroit pretty, pretty rapidly after that, and it helped convince Americans that, that, that a shakeout rather than a bailout uh, was in order for the big three. Unfortunately, what transpired was a shakedown. Although legislation to provide funding uh, to the automakers passed in the House in December of 2008, it didn't garner enough support in the Senate where it died. So prospects for any form of a taxpayer bailout at that point seemed remote. Uh, Chapter 11 seemed the only option for GM and Chrysler. Then, just days after then-Secretary uh, of the Treasury Henry Paulson claimed to have no authority under the TARP to divert funds to the auto producers, President Bush announced that he would authorize bridge loans from the TARP of $9.4 billion to GM and $4 billion to Chrysler. Uh, with the companies incurring $6 billion of operating losses per month, uh, it was pretty easy to see that those funds would be exhausted uh, in a matter of months. And when Chrysler and GM returned to Washington, uh, as stipulated in the terms of their loan, uh, to present their, their revitalization plans to the new president, it was evident that central to those plans uh, were billions more in taxpayer dollars. I would say President Obama was probably correct to, to conclude that the companies had not produced a viable business plan, although really, why should that be the president's decision anyhow? Uh, at that moment, Obama should have pointed the way toward the bankruptcy courts and walked away. Uh, but instead, he asserted a major role for his administration uh, by choosing to broker pre-bankruptcy deals for the companies and the major stakeholders, and that's where things went awry. Uh, to be sure, I would say President Bush's extension of $13.4 billion uh, in loans to Chrysler and GM in circumvention of the wishes of Congress and in contravention of the express purpose of the Troubled Assets Relief Program to support financial institutions uh, was the original policy sin. You know, without those loans, neither automaker would have had the alternative to filing for bankruptcy protection by the end of 2008. Bush's loans bought time for the companies and the United Auto Workers to convince President-elect and then President Obama that their fears about, about their fears of traditional bankruptcy. Uh, the public was told that consumers wouldn't buy cars from companies in bankruptcy. But fear of the concessions an independent bankruptcy judge, an independent bankruptcy process likely would have required from the UAW, as well as the allure to the Obama administration of interceding and crafting a more pliable entity to showcase green production were the real reasons in my view, for avoiding orthodox Chapter 11 procedures. In a matter of weeks after filing the respective bankruptcies, both GM and Chrysler emerged. Uh, they restructured mostly in accordance uh, with the plans crafted by the Obama administration, with taxpayers owning 60% of GM and 10% of Chrysler. Now, in the administration's telling of the tale, it saved the industry. 
But that is merely a romanticized ending to the first chapter, which could be titled, Pandora Opens the Box. The real question now is how much damage will be caused by the monsters Pandora let out. Normal bankruptcy proceedings should have started long before Bush's loans, long before President Obama promised billions more and assumed a larger role for the federal government, long before President Obama ran roughshod over established bankruptcy procedures and strong-armed Chryslers and GMs preferred lenders into taking pennies on their loan dollars while giving preference to claimants of lesser priority, long before Ford, Toyota, BMW, Honda, and the rest of America's automobile industry were denied the spoils of competition and implicitly taxed by the government's intervention, and also long before, the bus- before other businesses and other industries started to get the idea that failure would be rewarded. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, taxpayers are now majority stakeholders in a company whose success depends on good stewardship from 537 CEOs, most of whom don't consider GM's bottom line a priority. That 537, of course, is Congress plus the president plus Fritz Henderson, the nominal GEO, uh, CEO. Uh, one of GM's first decisions upon exiting uh, bankruptcy was to announce closures of a number of its dealerships to help reduce costs. Not a bad idea. Congress reacted by pressuring GM to reverse many of those decisions. And the House of Representatives even passed a bill requiring companies that received federal funds uh, to reestablish terminated dealership agreements. The lesson that GM cannot implement a crucial operating decision without running things past its many overlords bodes poorly for the company's prospects. It pretends highly erratic management as the President and Congress wrestle for decision-making primacy at this majority taxpayer-owned entity. After all, the Constitution is silent on the matter of which branch of government furnishes the CEO of a nationalized company. (laughs) Returning uh, GM to profitability will require higher revenues and lower costs, neither of which is made easier by rigid fuel efficiency standards. GM has had its greatest success in the larger vehicle market. GM's pickup trucks, its SUVs, its muscle cars, its luxury cars provide its highest profit margin. Uh, much, much more profitable than, than their, their small offerings, small car offerings. But to even be eligible to sell an adequate number of these highly demanded cars, uh, these popular vehicles, and to reach profit targets, GM will have to sell a sufficient number of small cars to attain an average fleet efficiency of 35.5 miles per gallon by 2016. But GM doesn't have a market for small vehicles, and the Chevy Volt at 40000 bucks a pop isn't really going to be much help. Small car purchasers prefer other brands. How do we know that? We know that from the dynamic that just played out this summer in the Cash for Clunkers program. Auto buyers were given the option and incentives to buy more fuel-efficient cars, and the results couldn't be clearer. The top ten sellers included three Toyotas, three Hondas, two Fords, one Hyundai, and one Nissan. So Cash for Clunkers exacerbated GM's market share contraction, rendering the program the latest government brainchild to work at cross-purposes with the grand objective of returning GM to profitability and health. Another point, uh, the auto industry is healthy. Interestingly, last November, one day before the CEOs uh, of GM, Ford, and Chrysler told the Senate Banking Committee that their industry faced imminent collapse without an emergency infusion of $25 billion, a new auto assembly plant opened for business in Greensburg, Indiana. Although the hearing on Capitol Hill received uh, far more media coverage, the unveiling of Honda's latest facility in the American heartland spoke volumes about the future of the U.S. auto industry, and it underscored the absurdity uh, of the president's triumphalist claim that he got the auto industry back on its feet. 
In 2008, the big three accounted for 55% uh, of, of U.S. light vehicle production uh, and 50% of, of sales. Honda, Toyota, Nissan, Kia, VW, and the rest, uh, the other foreign nameplate producers who manufacture vehicles in the United States are the other half of the industry. They employ Americans, they pay U.S. taxes, uh, they buy from U.S. businesses, contribute to charities, and, and have genuine stakes in their communities. Industry bailouts are clearly unfair to taxpayers, but they're also unfair to the firms not seeking bail handouts. Uh, these firms are implicitly taxed when their weaker competition is subsidized. If the market is functioning properly, the better firms, those who are more innovative, more efficient, more popular, gain market share and increase profits while the lesser firms contract. This evolutionary process ensures that limited resources are used most productively and that the most eligible firms lead their industries into the future. There are plenty of healthy auto producers in the United States. The ones that are best equipped to survive the downturn will emerge stronger. Uh, but that process is undermined when Ford and Toyota and Kia, Honda and the rest uh, can't compete on a level playing field with GM. The prospect that the government will throw more of its heft in support of GM is cause for genuine concern. Conservatively, uh, the government has directed $65 billion in taxpayer resources to GM and Chrysler since December 2008. It's a bargain by Wall Street standards, Wall Street bailout standards, but it's, it's still a lot of money. Uh, most Americans are not happy about these investments having been made on their behalf. So the president has some incentive to make taxpayers whole, uh, but the likelihood that taxpayers will be made whole is dwarfed by the likelihood that the public outlay will grow larger. In the case of GM, for taxpayers to get their principal back, that's just their principal, no interest, no capital gain, uh, the company will have to be worth about $83 billion. Now, that figure is derived by considering that taxpayers invested roughly $50 billion in GM, which was deemed by the bankruptcy plan to be worth 60% of the company. So how likely is the value of GM to reach $83 billion anytime soon? Well, at its historic high in 2000, GM's market cap stood at $60 billion. Thus, the company's value must increase by 38% from its historic high achieved in the year 2000 when Americans were buying 16 million vehicles a year. Uh, demand projections for the next few years are much lower. They come in around 10 million per year, which suggests that the prospects for the government divesting profitably uh, from GM are extremely remote. In fact, a September report uh, from an independent uh, congressional oversight panel uh, concluded that taxpayers are unlikely to be made whole. But ultimately, the administration and Congress, I'm, I'm worried, might succumb to the temptation to use public policy and the tax code to, to push consumers to subsidize particular products or otherwise tip the scales further in favor of GM again. So what will happen to Ford? What will happen to the foreign nameplate producers when policymakers have a favored horse in the race? Ford is relatively healthy now, but continued assistance to GM could well drive it to the trough, too. And that possibility uh, presents the specter of another taxpayer bailout to the tune of tens of billions of dollars and another government-run auto company. That's where things stand. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to the panelists to provide the sordid details that we've advertised uh, and much more in-depth analysis of the impact of the Bush-Obama interventions on the rule of law, private property rights, bond markets, and other institutions crucial to pro the proper functioning of America's free enterprise system. Please join me in welcoming first David Skeel. Thanks a million, Dan. Uh, and thanks for the invitation to come, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of our 
uh, conversation. You've said many of the things I was going to say, so I probably could uh, cut my remarks short. But since I am a law professor, law professors don't know how to cut their remarks short, uh, so I will uh, give them. Um, as a, not just a law professor, but a bankruptcy law professor, a bankruptcy specialist, I can't resist starting off with a little bit of, uh, I don't want to call it suppressed glee, but we bankruptcy law professors are not used to being invited to places like this to speak. So uh, if there's a silver lining in the recent crisis, for those of us who teach bankruptcy, it's that we are relevant in a way that we haven't been in the past. And just to give you a couple quick uh, examples of that relevance, um, uh, you see cartoons that we didn't use to see. This cartoon is an airline. Uh, the flight attendant is talking on her mic, and she says, ladies and gentlemen, is there a bankruptcy uh, attorney on board? Um, and as uh, you know, if you flied on airlines any time in the last 10 years, they've all been through bankruptcy. Um, one more. I won't spend 20 minutes doing this. Um, here's another cartoon, Bankruptcy Next Exit, uh, which gives you a sense of where we are and what we are focusing on um, these days in, uh, in American life, or at least one thing we're, we're focusing a lot about um, on a lot. Now this... Okay. Um, so to start out with a, a 40,000-foot overview of what I'd like to talk about, um, and as I just alluded to, uh, some of what I'm going to say is quite similar to what Dan has already said. Basic point I, argument I would want to make is uh, the fact that Chrysler and GM went through bankruptcy is not all bad. It's important to separate the good from the bad of it. The good of it is they did, in fact, go through bankruptcy. It was quite clear that both Chrysler and GM needed to be in bankruptcy. Indeed, they needed to be in bankruptcy, as Dan just suggested, long before they were. Um, so the fact that they went through bankruptcy is not the problem here. Bankruptcy where it was where they should have been. They should have been there two or three years ago. They resisted um, for two or three years. Where the bad is, in my view, is in how the government commandeered the bankruptcy process, the way the government distorted the normal bankruptcy rules um, in a fashion that has some very, very dangerous implications, in my view. So that's the 40,000 foot overview. What I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes or so is, is three things. Uh, the first is the most painful uh, for y'all, and that is I'm going to do a little bit of bankruptcy 101. I want to start out by talking about the technical bankruptcy issues. Just what um, was at stake in the bankruptcy? What are the key provisions? What is it that the government did that was unusual? In the coverage that you see on these bankruptcies, understandably, you don't get much of a detail on exactly what was happening from a bankruptcy perspective. So I think this will be the most um, painful, the dullest uh, part of our discussion, but in some respects it mo might be the most helpful thing that I have to say. If you can bear with me for five or ten minutes, um, if you don't already understand the bankruptcy issues, I think you will understand them. And let me um, sort of conclude that um, description of what I'm going to do by saying if anybody has questions while I'm talking, particularly clarifying kinds of questions, feel free to, um, to ask them because uh, I do want to get out the basic bankrupt whoops, bankruptcy parameters. Um, the second thing I'll do and the second and third things will be a little bit quicker. One is 
describe what was abusive about the way the government used the bankruptcy process in Chrysler and then in GM. And then very quickly, I will talk about the implications of the auto cases, both for bankruptcy in the future and for American markets and finance um, in the future. So starting off with, as I keep saying, the painful part of the discussion, what is it that was at stake in the bankruptcy case? And this is, uh, I am compressing an entire semester of bankruptcy, the heart of it, um, into one slide. Uh, these, these two subsections, 1129A and 1129B, that is the core of um, a bankruptcy class. It's the most complicated part of a bankruptcy class as well. Two sections in principle, uh, principally at stake in these cases. One is 363. 363 is a very simple section. You've heard these cases referred to as 363 sales. What 363 says is simply the trustee, after notice in a hearing, may use, sell, or lease, other than in the ordinary course of business, property of the estate. What does that mean? What it means is if the trustee, or if there is no trustee, the debtor, the folks running the company, if they want to do anything unusual, they need to get court approval. It's a very simple, straightforward, blanket provision that says if you want to do anything that you wouldn't be doing every day, you need to get court approval and give people a chance to object. 1129A and B, on the other hand, are the heart of um, chapter 11. When we talk about Chapter 11, when we talk about reorganization, what we are talking about is 1129 um, uh, uh, most often. So I will walk through these very quickly. What these have are the key protections for creditors in connection with the confirmation of a reorganization plan. Now that sentence, just listening to it, sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> Uh, but there's some more terrible stuff to come. Uh, if you want to confirm a plan, if you want to restructure the company and do it voluntarily, you have to satisfy a list of 15 or 16 requirements in 1129A. And I put on the slide the most important of those requirements. One is... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and I'll do the same. 1129A has the 15 or 16, I think it's 15 requirements for a voluntary reorganization. Three very important ones. One is a requirement that is referred to colloquially as the best interests of the creditors test. What that says is I, as a creditor, must be promised at least as much as I would get if this company were reorganized. So the best interest of the creditor test says a plan cannot be confirmed unless it's giving me at least as much as I would get if this company were shut down and sold off in liquidation. Um, 1129A8 is the voting provision. It says that to consensually uh, confirm a plan, every class of creditors and shareholders must vote yes. For a class of creditors to vote yes, that means two-thirds in dollar amount have to vote yes, a majority in number um, have to vote yes. If every class votes yes, you satisfy 1129A8. 
The other requirement that I'll mention um, is what's known as the feasibility requirement. The court has to look at this plan and say it's feasible in the sense that we're not likely to quickly be returning to bankruptcy um, court. So a whole bunch of requirements in 1129 designed to protect creditors. I've mentioned the three most important. All of those go to consensually confirming a reorganization plan. If somebody votes no, if at least one class votes against the plan, less than a majority or less than two-thirds in, am in amount vote yes, so the class votes no, a plan can still be confirmed if it meets 1129B. And what you have to do to meet 1129B is meet all of the requirements of 1129A except the voting requirement. The plan must not discriminate unfairly, and what discriminate unfairly means is it has to treat similarly situated creditors, creditors with roughly the same priority, similarly. You can't give one class of unsecured creditors 90 cents on the dollar, not pay anything to other unsecured creditors, which, um, to get ahead of my story, is part of what happened in Chrysler um, in particular. Um, so you can't discriminate unfairly. You also have to satisfy the absolute priority rule. And what the absolute priority rule says is senior creditors have to be paid in full before junior creditors um, can get anything. So an elaborate set of provisions in 1129, 1129A is voluntary plans. It has a voting requirement. It has a, um, a minimum payment amount requirement. It has a feasibility requirement. Then there is a cram-down option if the voting doesn't work as long as you meet the discrimination test and the absolute priority um, rule test. So, um, two key provisions, 363 and 1129. And I'll stop for a second um, at that point. Are there any questions about these provisions? We're almost to the end of the most painful part of my remarks. Uh -huh. yeah. They are. So that the shareholders have to vote yes, too. Everybody has, each class has to vote yes. And so they're, from the voting perspective, there's no privileging of creditors over shareholders. Each class has to vote yes. One implication of this is that in a lot of bankruptcy cases, if you're going to cut off shareholders, which you're likely to want to do if the company is insolvent, you're not going to be able to confirm a plan under 1129A. You're going to have to go to 1129B is one of the practical um, implications. Other questions on, um, and then I'll start rolling with this. Mm Besides -hmm. about whether the discrimination is unfair. It's the bankruptcy court, ultimately. What happens is there's a hearing when the debtor proposes a plan. Everybody has a right to object. In any individual creditor or shareholder can object. They say, court, this plan is discriminatory. I am an unsecured creditor just like they are, but my class is only getting 10 cents. Their class is getting 90 cents. That, that violates the discrimination rule. So it's the court that makes um, the ultimate decision. So these are going to be the key provisions, and I want to focus for a minute on 363 because that's where we're going to end up. When Congress put 363 in place, what Congress had in mind is it would be used for little transactions like maybe selling a piece of equipment or selling some small part of the business. 
Congress never imagined 363 would be used to sell major parts of the business or entire businesses. But fairly early on, debtors started using 363 or asking to use 363 to sell parts of the business. Um, And the question quickly became, when can you do that? When can you use 363 to sell, in particular, the whole business given that if we use 363, we are avoiding all of those 1129 um, requirements. If you use 363, you're circumventing the normal Chapter 11 process. So courts ask the question, when is it okay to do that? And the answer they reach, simplifying quite a bit, is first, there needs to be a legitimate business justification for the sale. And second, the sale cannot be what's known as a sub-ROSA reorganization plan. It can't be a reorganization plan in disguise. It has to be a real sale. So these were the major requirements. You have to show there's a business justification. You have to show it's not a sub-ROSA plan. So if you look at the Chrysler opinion, you'll see a lot of discussion about this. What ended up happening in practice is that bankruptcy courts started with those general rules the uh, must be a business just justification, can't be a sub-ROSA plan, and they developed safeguards, substitute protections to take account of the fact that many of these cases look like Chapter 11, but are not providing these 1129 protections. So there are three things that courts might do in particular. Um, one of them is to value the company, simply value the company and make sure that the valuation that the the company or that the buyer is putting in connection with the sale is a legitimate valuation, is really what um, the value of the assets are. This is a safeguard that was not used very frequently. In fact, it was almost never used because people worry about valuations and their accuracy. But you could do that as a safeguard. If we're doing a sale, if we assure that the price the company is getting for its assets is a good price, then we're not quite so worried about creditors being left unprotected. Second thing that courts did is they looked to see at whether creditors consented to the sale. In particular, whether the creditors who were going to be hurt by the sale, by which I mean the creditors who are going to benefit if it's a good sale price are going to lose if it's a bad sale price. The creditors who are not going to get 100 cents on the dollar, courts looked and still look to see whether they're happy with the sale, whether they're on board with the sale or whether they're not on board with the sale. So that was the second. Actually, I don't think I have a slide for this. No. Um, That was the second safeguard. The final safeguard was to make sure to do a market test, effectively, to make sure that this was an active open auction where if there is another potential buyer out there who's willing to pay more, that buyer will have an incentive to come out and make a higher bid. Um, So we have this elaborate development in the cases dealing with the dilemma that 363 sales potentially are circumventing the protections of Chapter 11. Courts um, implemented 363 by looking for a business justification, by prohibiting sub-ROSA plans, and by implementing one or more of these safeguards I've just referred to, a valuation, consent of the creditors, or a free and open 
auction. Then came Chrysler, which, to give you the punchline, which won't surprise you, does not do any of these things. Um, the Chrysler transaction, as many of you are probably well aware, um, in theory, this was a sale, quote unquote, for $2 billion. The senior creditors, as Richard will tell you, were, owned, were owed $6.9 billion. They had a security interest in essentially all of Chrysler's assets. They were going to get the proceeds of this sale, which was $2 billion. Um, so they were going to get less than 30 and are going to get less than 30 cents on the dollar. I put sale in quotes in part because the, quote, buyer is fiat. How much money is fiat putting into this transaction? Nothing. They didn't put a cent into the transaction. All they did was offered to run Chrysler on behalf of the U.S. government. So the, the senior creditors are getting 29 cents on the dollar. Several other creditors are getting a much better payout despite the fact that they are unsecured creditors. So the retirement fund, the VIBA um, fund, is a $10 billion claim. It's getting a $4.6 billion um, note plus 55% of the new Chrysler company stock, which is going to end up being a large percentage of that $10 billion. $5.3 billion of trade claims of old Chrysler, every dollar is going to be paid by new Chrysler. So that the way that this worked out is that senior creditors got $0.29 cents on the dollar, couple of classes of junior creditors got something close to 100 cents on the dollar, and um, um, in the case of trade claims, got 100 cents on the dollar. Now, if we could be sure that $2 billion was, in fact, the value of all of Chrysler's assets, this theoretically wouldn't be a problem. The argument would be, and this is the argument that the Bankruptcy Court and Second Circuit accepted, that the assets were only worth $2 billion. That $2 billion went to the senior lenders. Everything else that's being paid to other creditors isn't being paid by old Chrysler or its assets. It's just being paid by new Chrysler, and new Chrysler can do whatever it, it wants. So the question after this transaction, or in connection with this transaction, is can we be sure that $2 billion was a legitimate or the best possible price for those assets? Um, the answer is absolutely not. So if we quickly go through the safeguards that bankruptcy courts have put in place, do we see any of those safeguards in place? First, how about evaluation of the company? We did have a valuation of the company, but it was one party's valuation of the company. We did not have competing valuations as we would ordinarily have. Interesting note about the one valuation, the self-serving valuation that we had um, in the Chrysler case, is that even Chrysler's experts initially projected a range that went above $2 billion. Um, they suggested that the value of the assets might be worth um, $2.6 billion or more. Nothing like a full and fair contested valuation. How about creditor consent? A lot was made of, uh, of Richard's uh, fellow senior lenders consenting to this deal. Um, the, the majority of those claims were held by TARP lenders. 
by any normal definition of consent, they would not be included as consenting. They obviously were doing the government's bidding um, as long as they had um, TARP money. How about a market test, a full and fair auction? This, in my view, is the single most um, pernicious attribute of the Chrysler transaction. Could somebody come out of the woodworks and say, make a bid for $2.5 billion for Jeep? or for some other line of business of of Chrysler? The answer was no. You could make a a bid for Chrysler to compete against the government's bid, but if you wanted to make a bid, you basically had to do all the things the government was promising to do. You had to promise to pay the VIBA um, $4.6 billion and give them a whole bunch of stock. You had to promise to pick up the trade claims. So there was no auction here at all. Basically, the government said, if you want to compete with us, you got to do our deal. Um, um, for us. You can't come up with an alternative transaction. Um, Final question, uh, when you look at these safeguards, or really the absence of safeguards, is was this really a sale at all? Should we treat this as something that can be, under any circumstances, done under 363? And I think with Chrysler, there's a strong argument it simply wasn't a sale. It was a reorganization by other means. With GM, that was even more um, the case. Um, just to quickly go through GM, um, GM used Chrysler as a guinea pig. It was not accidental that Chrysler went first, then GM went second. In Chrysler, there was at least a buyer that one could say with a straight face was, a, was sort of with a straight face as the buyer. At least there was a name we could put out. Fiat was ostensibly the buyer. With GM, there was no pre- pretense that there was um, any kind of a buyer. Um, same auction rules. You could compete with the government for GM as long as you did precisely the same deal they wanted to do, which means there was no auction um, in GM. One of the ironies about these transactions is they do, by setting up a sham sale that reorganizes what people are entitled to, exactly the same sort of thing that was done in reorganizations 100 years ago under a process that was known as the... um, as the equity receivership, and they did it in a way that the new dealers, um, uh, who are, well, the the, uh, new deal reformers thought they had stamped out and had made possible, it had disappeared for 70 years until Chrysler or GM. Um, So a little quiz, anybody know who this is? This is William Douglas, um, not somebody who probably would spend much time inside of this building. He would, be, um, he would be rolling in his grave, and no doubt is rolling in his grave, looking at what the government did in GM and Chrysler. So a couple last slides. What are the implications of this? For bankruptcy, the consequence of these transactions or the danger of the transactions is that they now make it possible to pretty blatantly subvert ordinary priorities. Insiders in the future, at least if courts continue to sign off on this kind of transaction, will be able to manipulate um, the restructuring so that they can favor some creditors and disfavor others. In Chrysler and GM, or in Chrysler in particular, senior lenders were disfavored 
tort creditors were disfavored, everybody else was favored. Um, in addition, you can have auctions that make it impossible for competing bidders to emerge. You can have auctions where you put restrictions on who can possibly be a bidder question these cases raise is why would anybody now, if they're legitimate precedent, ever use the normal Chapter 11 process? Why use Chapter 11 when you can just use 363? Um, consequences, and this is my final slide, um, for, I think it's my final slide, for markets and finance generally, one huge consequence is that people are going to be more willing to lend, particularly to troubled businesses. When, if, if you know that what happened to Richard um, can happen to anybody who lends on a senior basis, on a secured basis, to a troubled business, you're going to think twice about lending. And there's a huge irony here, it seems to me. And that is that precisely the businesses that people think might be in line for a government bailout are going to be the ones least able to borrow because those are the ones that are most likely to be subject to this kind of a manipulation. So the question I ask is, um, try raising money right now if you're an auto supplier from the markets or a newspaper, two businesses that some people think the government might step in with. Impossible for them to borrow money um, now. It may be with newspapers that's not a bad thing, um, but it's been made worse by Chrysler and um, GM. The effect of all of this is the government has said that we're getting out of the bailout business. We just did it with the car makers and with Lehman and AIG, or not so much with Lehman, but with AIG and Bear Starnes. Um, it was a one-off kind of thing. The effect of these transactions is going to be to make bailouts more likely, um, not less likely. I'll stop with that. Thank you very much, David. Now let's please welcome uh, Richard Murdoch. Thank you all. Uh, appreciate the chance to be with you. Not being a professor, I don't have slides. Um, but I do want to start with one. Since uh, Professor Skeel had the cartoon that started, I want you to picture this cartoon because this was from the Indianapolis Star. Picture, if you will, the slide. You see the legs of a giant just that's all you see from the knees down and one shin has a guard on it and it's labeled United Auto Workers and the other shin is labeled Chrysler Corporation and then there's this tiny little body underneath a shield with this big rock laying on top of it and on the shield it says Murdoch's case against Chrysler <laughs> David versus Goliath that's what we had there well, I'm really honored to get to be here to tell you a part of the story today, and I, I do want to say uh, very much to Cato Institute, thank you for filing the amicus brief on our uh, behalf in this case. Uh, as Dan was going through that chronology at the beginning, probably, probably many of you were thinking back to the television stories you saw at the time or the radio reports, or you were thinking of the newspaper headlines from those days in May and June. As I heard that, I was having the experience I was going through a train wreck all over again. A friend of mine survived a terrible airplane crash a few years ago, and he said, you know, it was a horrifying experience, but I'll always remember it as one of the most interesting experiences of my life. And that's kind of what this case has been. I noticed several eyebrows go up when Dan gave my resume, and he mentioned that I happen to be a geologist. And I, I will tell you, as a geologist, I never imagined I would end up at the United States Supreme Court. 
if someone had told me when I sought this office in 2006 that while I served as state treasurer, I'd be part of the biggest financial meltdown in history and be involved with a Supreme Court case that has what I think are just huge implications for where we go forward in finance, I probably would have thought, find somebody else to do this job. This story from the Indiana point of view, and I'll kind of fill in a few gaps and perhaps put not just the letter of the law on it, but kind of give you a personal side of what was happening through this case. This case as it unfolded in Indiana had huge implications. We have over 6,000 Chrysler employees in the state of Indiana. We have uh, nearly twice that many General Motors employees in the state of Indiana. And as was mentioned, we also have Honda and we have Toyota and we have Isuzu. Uh, Indiana, though you may not know it, we are the motor state. Uh, used to be Michigan, not so much anymore. It's Indiana. And when the Chrysler bankruptcy was announced, I had no idea that we would be involved in this case to the way that we were. From our historical perspective, the state of Indiana had three funds that had bought that secured debt of Chrysler Corporation. One is the Indiana Teachers Retirement Fund, uh, for which I have no legal authority, by the way. I simply served as their representative in this case. The Indiana State Police Pension Fund, I am the sole trustee of that fund, and an infrastructure fund that I serve effectively as trustee, the Major Moves Construction Fund. Those three funds bought $43 million worth of secured debt of Chrysler Corporation in July of 2007. And you might think, well, gee, back then uh, that wasn't the best of times even for the automotive industry. Why did you buy that stuff? And the answer was, and I'm sorry, I said 2007, it was 2008. Uh, we bought it in July of 2008. Yeah, the auto industry was uh, sucking wind, to put it mildly, but it was steeply discounted at 43 cents on the dollar, so we effectively paid $17 million. And we bought it for a very basic reason, aside from the fact it was secured. We also have in our state, as most states do, the open policy of trying to support businesses that have a big footprint in that state. And so when we bought that debt of Chrysler, we were hoping to be a party to their success never imagining that eight weeks later when Lehman Brothers went down and the stock market went down that we would be dragged in to this incredible struggle. As was said here, the bankruptcy was announced in uh, late April. It was actually April 30th of 2009. It happened after, and as a Republican, it pains me to say this, but it started with, as Dan correctly pointed out, the Bush administration starting to use money from TARP and we ultimately said that that was an illegal use of those funds. Even we have records now that show as early as in late February, uh, early March, the United States government in many ways began running Chrysler Corporation, and we know that from a chain of emails that was going back and forth that came to us through the discovery process. When the bankruptcy was announced, two things were said that immediately should have put every American's nerves on edge, I think. It was said it would be the most complex bankruptcy in American history. And secondly, it was said it would be completed in 30 days. <laughs> Think of that. I mean, if you've ever been involved with a bankruptcy, they normally last months, if not years, some last decades. And yet this, the most complex bankruptcy in American history, we were told, was going to be pushed through in less than 30 days. One of the reasons that was given was that the potential buyer, Fiat, was going to walk away if the deal wasn't done by then. Well, as you heard the professor say, they didn't have to invest a penny. I kept saying all through this process, slow it down, slow it down. 
the government was saying fiat will walk away. And I said, you know what? You give me $400 million. If you don't give it to me on Monday, you tell me to come back on Tuesday. I promise. I'll be back. <laughs> Indeed, on the day the sale, I call it the gift, took place to fiat, the president and chairman of Fiat Corporation, Sergio Marchione, said, I don't know where the date came from. It never came from us. Think about that. That was the so-called reason for pushing this thing through from the U.S. government. And yet the head of the corporation that was getting the gift said it didn't come from them. It was all part of the orchestrated plan to just shove this through at any price, make it happen. When that announcement was made about the bankruptcy on that day, as indicated in the slide, there were $6.9 billion of senior secured debt. Of that 6.9, 6.6 was held by the biggest banks. 300 million was held by private equity funds and pension funds. And that's where we are. That's where Indiana is. And the professor mentioned this, but I just want to add the emphasis here. And you can tell I'm getting angry, okay? I've told this story at least 70 times from a podium. Every time I still get angry. That $6.6 billion was held by the largest TARP banks. The day of the bankruptcy, they all said, well, you know what? If we've worked with Chrysler for years. We understand the finances. We saw their sheets in December at the close of the year. There's billions of assets. We expect 100 cents on the dollar. And it was the government, not Chrysler Corporation, that said, no, you're not getting 100 cents. But, but, but we're secured creditors. Doesn't matter. Three days later, they effectively all walked in a room, smiles on their faces, and said, we're going to take 29 cents. Every one of you should wonder what the heck happened. And the professor told you what happened. This whole class of secured creditors had been made prostitute by the fact that they had received the TARP monies. How impossible is it to imagine that the officials of the United States Treasury didn't say to those folks, don't you boys get it? We've told you, you're too big to fail. We've told you. We put $90 billion in your collective banks. You don't have to worry about losses anymore. American taxpayers got your back. I return to that $300 million tranche. Held by those private equity funds, it was very clear, and the pension funds, nobody had our back. Nobody told us that we were too big to fail. Almost immediately, leaders, executives from those private equity funds went rushing to the courthouse in the bankruptcy trial or bankruptcy of New York to file suits and file complaints to stop the sale. The next day, the President of the United States said, anyone who would try to stop the Chrysler bankruptcy was an unpatriotic American, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to sacrifice for the community. That was pretty shocking stuff to me especially representing teachers and state police. But the story becomes a little bit personal here. You know, I know a woman who uh, is retired, spent most of her career working in schools. She's not a teacher, but spent working in schools. She's getting a pension from a teacher's pension fund. I know a man who is a retired state police officer. And they're my parents. They both served in World War II in the United States Navy. They are not unpatriotic Americans. I should add for the record, they're not from Indiana either. But they are the type of people that were affected by this bankruptcy and by the overreaching of the federal government to have their resources ripped away from them. It is wrong. It is wrong. Those private equity fund managers went rushing to the courthouse. Mr. Obama made those statements. It was also said and leaked, I think, that the full weight and measure of the White House media office would be used against anybody 
who tried to stop the bankruptcy. As reported in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal during the next several days, all of the managers of those private equity funds went back to the courts, asked to withdraw the lawsuits because of the threats they'd received. And they asked to withdraw the lawsuits to the point that they asked that the court documents be permanently sealed to protect their identities. I'm not making this stuff up. As that was happening, I had a meeting with Governor Daniels. And we talked about what we might likely do in this case. We were stunned to see these things unfolding. And we agreed that we would probably, with other pension funds, be part of a class action suit, be an anonymous member of a class, and quite frankly, that would have been fine with me. I'm not one, I do this because it's part of the job. I don't necessarily get in front of microphones or cameras because I like to do it. Well, the next day, sitting at my desk, looking over the computer screen, I cannot begin to describe the feeling that hit in the pit of my stomach as I read the other pension funds that were, in fact, there were other states, but only two that had bought this debt. One was the state of California. That very week, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in this city trying to get his own $50 billion bailout, so I knew he wasn't going to buck the feds. In the other state, irony of ironies perhaps, was the state of Michigan, home of Chrysler, home of General Motors. Sitting there looking at that screen at that moment, thinking, you know, there are 305 million Americans. Why do I have to be the guy who has to be here? As I said, I would have gladly given the job to somebody else. We brought the lawsuit, though. We brought ourselves into this case because of three fundamental points. Number one, and I'm not going to repeat all the detail that the professor gave you, but I'm just not being a lawyer. I'm going to dumb this down to my level. And some of you may understand this better if you're not lawyers. Basically, we made the argument, number one, this is a sub rosa, under the table deal. You had the United States government picking creditors, which ones would do well, which ones wouldn't, picking which assets would be kept in the package, which ones wouldn't, what the liquidation would be done, how it would be done, what the values would be, even suggestions as to which dealers would be kept and which ones wouldn't be. And it was all being put in a package for an auction in which there would only be one bidder. And guess who it was? The United States government. I just said there would only be one bidder. How did I know that would be the case? Because, in fact, it was a 10% non-refundable bid deposit you had to make which meant about $600 million. I was pretty sure nobody else was going to show up. I was right. The second point that we argued under that sub rosa argument is that you cannot, as the professor explained, use bankruptcy just to get rid of the creditors and start all over again. That's not what bankruptcy is for. That does just send totally the wrong message, and yet you look at this so-called new Chrysler. It's effectively the same management with the same labor force, working in the same plants, with the same tools, under the same patents, with the same licenses, making the same products through the same divisions, selling them through the same dealerships. Sounds like the same company to me. Second point of our lawsuit, and these are the parts I better understand to be quite clear, that pesky old document we call the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 says in part that the Congress shall establish uniform bankruptcy law. It began that work in 1790, and it deemed those words secured creditor to mean in the event of that nightmare scenario, you are first in line to get your money back. 
doesn't guarantee you that you're going to get all your money back, but before any of the non-secureds get a penny, all the secureds would get their money back. Until, as Professor Skeel said, until Chrysler. Congress shall set bankruptcy law. It is not for the judicial system to do it, and it is certainly not for the executive. The Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution has what is often called the takings clause, which surely should be called the non-takings clause. It says the government cannot take the wealth of any citizen without due process of law. A couple examples of what we see are failed due process here. We received from the bankruptcy court in New York at 10 o'clock on Monday, May 18th, our written notice, it was signed, certified letter, I think actually 1005, telling us if we wish to file to try to get something other than the 29 cents, we had to provide all of our trade tickets, we had to provide affidavits, we had to do depositions, we had to provide a synopsis of a financial analysis of Chrysler Corporation, and it all had to be in the Bankruptcy Court of New York by 4 o'clock the next afternoon. Does that sound like due process? I don't think so. Ultimately, we got six days to review what we received from Chrysler. We received 385,000 pages of financial documents. We had six days to review them. I don't think that's due process either. The last point of law that we raised was that TARP issue. As Dan said, the TARP bill passed in October of 2008. It was to aid the ailing financial industry. If you read the 179 pages, you'll find the word automobile appears twice, both times as an adjective in front of the word batteries. As said, Secretary Paulson testified to both the House and Senate committees saying, this isn't an automobile bailout bill. That's not who it's for. Two months later, when that auto bailout bill passed the House and then died in the Senate, which begs the question, by the way, it was the same Congress. If they thought they'd bailed out the car companies in October, why did they even come back and try to pass a bailout bill in December? It's because they knew they hadn't voted to help the car companies. That bill dies, and then the Bush administration started misappropriating funds and sending them towards the auto companies. We ultimately received a short stay from the Second District Court of Appeals. Madam Justice Ginsburg issued a short stay that lasted from 3.58 on a Monday until about 7 o'clock the next day, and then the sale went forward. When the order that was issued by the Supreme Court that removed the stay, that let the sale happen, it said these words, and this is a direct quote, I do have it memorized, denial of stay is not a decision on the underlying legal merits of the case. An amazing statement to a layman to read from the United States Supreme Court. Ultimately, in August, some 60 days after they gave a 10-minute, had a ruling and gave uh, 10 minutes after that hearing, they presented their argument when they basically turned us down. 10 minutes it took them to come to a decision. It took them 60 days to write up what they had to say about our case, and I'm talking the United States Second District Court of Appeals. On that issue of Sub Rosa, they say, no, no, it really is a different company now because Fiat owns 20% of it. Okay, you know, what can you say? Yeah, you gave them 20%. Fair enough. On our points of the constitutional arguments, they come this close. I mean, this, this, this close to saying, yeah, Indiana's right. But then they say, after a tortuous argument, Indiana pensioners don't have standing. And the reason we don't have standing 
is because we didn't demonstrate that we could, in under any other circumstances, get more than 29 cents that we were being offered. And that comes back to the due process argument. Why? Did, because we didn't have a chance to really make the argument. On the TARP issue, and I love this language, this too is directly from the document. Indiana pensioners raise interesting and vexing questions regarding the constitutional appropriateness of the Treasury Secretary's actions in using TARP monies for the automakers. They go on to make the point that during the oral arguments, the feds actually said, well, yeah, TARP, we'll stipulate, TARP was meant for the financial industry, for the banks. But the auto industry is so related to the banks that they are, in fact, banks themselves. To which the second district wrote, if that is the standard, there is no standard, and it is inconceivable that the Congress of the United States would pass a law without their intending to be a standard. Some court, the second district wrote, really should take this case on and decide, but we don't have the authority to do so because we say they don't have standing. <laughs> because the court initially issued a stay in our case, and I may have this technically incorrect, but this is the way I think it works again in layman's terms, because the Supreme Court initially issued a stay, we actually had a 90-day window. When the sale took place in June, the rights of all the other secured creditors vaporized. But because they took the time to hear our case, we actually had 90 days to go back to them. So in early September, we went back with, with a writ of certiorari asking the court to again review the case. At our attorney's suggestion, who's had much experience at the court, he said, let's remove from the real basis of the argument the constitutional issue. Let's even remove the TARC argument. Let's focus on the due process issues here. And that's what we've done. If four justices sign are writ, the full court will hear the case. Call me a rosy-cheeked optimist. But I have to believe Justices Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts will want to deal with the law. I'm an optimist. I really am, even after this experience. So we're hoping yet to have this case heard. Total dollar amounts, you know, I get asked all the time, well, Murdoch, what are you arguing here? Was it, was it the money, was it the principle, or was it the law? Well, yeah. <laughs> Those three things are just absolutely inseparable in this case. If we are successful, we would be quite happy to get back the $6 million, not billion, $6 million that would make us whole in this case. We do not, and I say we, not just Indiana, not just Hoosiers, Americans deserve better than a government that will institute a policy that subsidizes foreign corporations while it's ripping off our own retirees. That's what we have here. Those hardworking Hoosiers who saved, and I don't care if it's $6 million, $60, $600 million, or $6 billion. It's their money. They saved it. They've invested. And to see... The minimal value that was given to fiat, and this is absolute minimal value, $400 million worth of assets on day one. And I could argue it's really about $5 billion. One other point I'll make, and that's just the way this whole valuation process happened, and perhaps Professor Skeel can talk about this better, but to the two different groups that came out of this, the secured, we were given our dollars based on liquidation value. And the experts assume the liquidation value, there were 40 different product lines at Chrysler. Only two of the 40 had any value, according to them. They received more than half a billion dollars a year just in a licensing agreement for the use of the name Jeep by others. 
And yet the whole value of this package is only supposed to be $2 billion for 40 different lines. They made assets disappear in a way which would have made David Copperfield proud. <laughs> One of the more celebrated cases here was when their chairman, Robert Nardelli, sat on the witness stand in the bankruptcy court in New York. He was asked how much the Dodge Viper, if you're not a gearhead like I am, uh, the Viper is sort of like a Corvette. It's a big muscle car for Dodge. How much it would be worth if they sold that division off? And his answer was, oh, I don't know, maybe $5 million. Within a few moments, my phone rang from a congressman from California who said he had a group of constituents who wanted to talk to me. It's a group called the uh, Saline um, Ventures Group. They take Ford Mustangs and hop them up, have high performance. Saline Mustangs, they're called. They sent us a 44-page pre-closing agreement that they had negotiated with Chrysler in which they agreed to buy the Viper for $35 million just a couple months before. And yet now you've got the chairman sitting there, oh, maybe $5 million. That's how assets were made to be minimized in this thing. This has been an incredible experience. Uh, as I said with my friend in the plane crash, would I want to live through this again? No, but it's been interesting. It's been very eye-opening. And it has made me painfully aware that... Uh, the price of liberty is indeed eternal vigilance. So with that, be glad to take questions. I hate to be the first voice to speak after that presentation, Richard. That was very compelling. Uh, earlier I said uh, that this is the makings, the, the makings of a John Grisham novel, but it's, I'm thinking more Shawshank Redemption now. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to open up the floor to questions, and uh, please raise your hand, and somebody will come around with the microphone, and uh, please speak into the microphone. Identify yourself and try to get to the question as quickly as possible, please. Uh, the gentleman back there, first row, second section. Thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, what have, are the precedents that are established? One can think of, you all didn't say it had to be a national emergency, but, for example, the airlines or the defense contractors would surely qualify if they had a strike. Couldn't the government do the same thing, give it to the unions and, the, uh, and tell the bondholders nothing or little? Is, is that feasible? And secondly, has that had any effect on the bonds of these, com these kind of companies? Is there any difference that investors are fearing anything like that might happen? I'll take a shot at that one first. Um, you know, that... That question could lead to a 40-minute speech. Um, was there a national emergency declared in this case? No, they just went ahead and did it. You know, I don't think there needs to be anything that motivates them other than what I will call a group of special political interest. You know, if they want to reward somebody, they now have a way of doing that. And can they make the argument that, well, it's a national emergency if this industry doesn't exist? Well, okay, let's take that argument. Then it does open the door to everybody. You know, we went through this in the early 50s with the steel companies. But now it could easily be the airlines, as indicated in Professor Skeel's report, the newspapers, uh, chemical companies. Uh, I could even see this example going the other way. Maybe businesses are too successful. You know, maybe there's another reason for a takeover there. Um, the egregiousness and the effect of this are so great, and yet they are so difficult to measure. I, I've told other groups, it's sort of like measuring aircraft safety by counting the number of airplanes that land. You know, one of the things that I said early on, not today, but as we look at this case, when you fundamentally change the rules of investing, 
which is what it does when you say secured credit no longer means secured credit. People are, number one, either going to demand more money when they loan a business money or they're going to invest elsewhere. An interesting bit of irony. During the very week that this happened, the first week of June, Secretary Geithner went to China. And he was telling the Chinese government officials why they needed to feel comfortable buying our bonds and God help us if they quit buying our bonds. But when he got done in one of the unofficial visits, he went into a room very similar to this at, I believe, the University of Beijing. And he was speaking to a group of Chinese business students. And picture the scene, 150 people in the room. They've got the little wire in their ear with the translator's voice uh, speaking to them. And Secretary Geithner said, the U.S. dollar is sound because of the sound and consistent economic policies of the administration. The room erupted in laughter. (laughs) Chinese business students get it. When you're going to tell people, well, secured credit doesn't really mean secured credit anymore, it gives you a reason to invest elsewhere. I cannot tell you how many billions of dollars are heading overseas right now, but I'll guarantee you they are. We've changed investing policies in our office because of this. We will no longer buy debt of corporations that have accepted bailout money because it's too risky. We had not even yet reduced that to writing, though. And one of my staff said, well, what about Ford? Well, what about Ford? They haven't taken bailout money. Well, that's true, but who are their major creditors? The same big banks, the TARP banks. How impossible is it to imagine, forget national emergency, how impossible is it to imagine a year from now, Chrysler and GM are still down here gasping for breath, they're struggling, Ford's up here, and someone doesn't say, well, you know, if we could just level the playing field. And they go to the banks and say, boys, call the loans. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy person. Lee Harvey Oswald acted on his own. They really did land on the moon in 1969. (laughs) I never would have found myself thinking that kind of thought a year ago. But when you start changing precedents to this nature, it opens the door for all kinds of dire possibilities. Sure. Right here. Do you want to – David, do you want to – I could add a quick footnote. Please. Um, uh, Could this happen again in other industries? Absolutely. And I think the dynamic – Richard is talking about the fact that people are reluctant to lend to industries that are connected to the government uh, increases the likelihood that that's what will happen because they won't be lending anywhere else. Um, Very interesting question on has anybody studied the effect on bond prices, for instance? And I, I don't think – I haven't seen a study, but I do think that people have looked at auto supplier debt prices and that there was they, – they did – there was a hit after, um, after the Chrysler deal was announced. But that's a great question. Hopefully people will be looking into that. Thanks, David. Uh, this gentleman in the sweater right there. Uh, my name is Tad Howard. Uh, to your point about another industry going, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. The Treasury is pressuring mortgages, uh, mortgage lenders, that first mortgages would no longer have precedence over second mortgages. They would be on equal footing. And presumably three days ago, I thought that a first mortgage would have, you know, priority. So I guess my question is, more to you, Mr. Murdoch, is the um, what is the status of the secured lending business right now? It's got to be dead. Well, it's, it's not dead, but, you know, it is out there. Um, there. You know, nothing in the financial world happens in a vacuum. Uh, 
it is and you know it's like measuring the bond sales yeah one thing may affect it but something else may go counter it's very hard to measure i mean the 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 whole financial structure that we're in right now credit is so tight in so many areas um there are a few areas where things are happening and there are areas where it is very silent but uh, as far as the mortgage stuff with that kind of news out there yeah it's certainly going to slow it down again people are so the the institutional investors which is to say the big pension funds, yes, state funds, they are being so cautious right now that they are, in, pa- in fact, part of the credit crisis just because they don't want to put that money out there because we aren't sure what the rules are. And I don't see that changing in the near future. David, do you want anything? No? Another question? Uh, yeah, right here. Yeah. My name is Lee. Lee Young. I think this kind of things, although this will be in, in terms of money, is in, in bigger multitude, but I think from local to federal, this type of conspiracies, and basically from the behind the door, they settle everything before they bring into the legislation bill, and then in the blink of the eye, it all passed. Or it's just an emergency bills, it's just in the blink of the eye, they all passed. And compared to the other grant or government appropriation, it's uh, really it's just too much for people of taxpayer to bear. But the problem is they use this type of money to hire employee or to testify or use this money to buy the voters, basically, because they hire an em- employee, they go vote for them, vote for the employer, what the employer asks them to vote. So just really destroy our democracy and really our capitalism is not real capitalism. What I call is a rubberism. <laughs> so just, uh, I think this kind of really unpatriotic but they change the world, become patriotic and everybody know, not following their rule is become unpatriotic. We must Ma- change Madam, can, can, of, can you bring the comment to, yeah, to a question comment please? Will be say, we must change the rule say Everything money is based on the merits, and actually everything based on cost effectiveness. If nothing is belong to the government function, we should not ask the government to give up the money. So we got to work on this, and I just wonder if you work. Why, why, why don't we why don't we take that as a commentary and uh, ask get get, a, get another question here? How about right here? I'm uh, Ivan Osorio, the competitive enterprise institute. Uh, this is Patricia Murdoch. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on another uh, threat facing uh, pension funds, which is the political the, – the use of pensions for, for political purposes. Uh, you mentioned California. I mean, CalPERS is an egregious example. And union pension funds, which, I mean, one of the one of the things that UAW and other unions want out of things like Africa, I think, is basically to replenish their pension funds, which have been used for, you know, shareholder resolutions that don't add to shareholder value. And there's a clamor for this. I mean, Elliot Spitzer yesterday for some, had a thing in the, a rant in Slate calling for more of this. Uh, so what can be done about this? Well, you're, you're asking the group that stands to benefit, the politicians, to alter a system that might cause them to benefit. <laughs> Sounds like a tough challenge. Um, <laughs> and it is. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I will confess to you I didn't have a true appreciation of until I'd been in the office for a while is just – even as a person who really, really strives towards fiscal responsibility, I mentioned to all of you here today, you know, why did we buy the Chrysler debt? Because we wanted to help that business with the big Indiana footprint. Do I have any dis- 
displeasure with myself for having done that? No, I don't. But more and more, as these rules are changing, um, you are, again, seeing people look to make political decisions with money. Was that a political decision in the use of our money? I guess in a small sense it was. But again, we were trying to help an Indiana business, so I guess I can live with that. But it does get to be a slippery slope, without question. And where we have so many pension funds investing now, um, and we're talking huge dollars, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, that when they want to use them as a potential force one way or the other, just in how they're making the investment, yeah, it can happen. It's something – it's hard to imagine for me to imagine that the Congress is going to re-regulate the thing in a, in a good way. If they're going to – frankly, right now, I almost hope they don't touch it because anything there will only get worse. Just um, quickly add, uh, I think really the only thing you can do with political decision-making by pension funds is shine a spotlight on it, the sort of spotlight that's being shined on CalPERS right now, um, and show that, as is almost always the case, these decisions don't make financial sense. And to the extent that you can show there's a cost to them, you might generate a reaction. But as long as public authorities are, have this money, there's going to be a risk they're going to use it in political ways, not financial ones. Question. Uh, right here on the end of this fourth row. Hi, I'm Bill Candace with the Congressional Research Service. Um, your writ of certiorari you mentioned, uh, if that's accepted, well, what do you? What would be the ideal outcome for you? With uh, what would the Supreme Court decide, uh, and would that affect any other creditors besides the Indiana pension funds? What would it do for us? I mean, it could do several things. And again, I'm not the lawyer here, but I'm told the court could say, "Yeah, you're right," and it wouldn't result in anything financial to us. They could just say, "Yeah, you're right," and thus try to set the precedent back to correct, as Professor referred to, with the 363 section being used correctly. I would hope what it would do in a financial sex, uh, financial sense is make Indiana pension funds whole. Um, does it affect anybody else by way of creditors? And the answer to that is no, I don't believe it does. So I don't think there's anything there. Am, am I correct on that? I, I th- I'm not actually not certain, but that, that sounds right to me. But, uh, but, but some sort of decision on that matter is, is, is long in coming, right? I mean, the, the appellate courts uh, are on both sides of the aisle. I think I read that maybe in one of your recent publications, uh, um, David. Yes, I'm not sure if I'm directly responsive to what you're saying, but one of the difficulties with 363 is once the sale goes through, it's done, and it, it's very hard to reverse it so the, the, and, and to reverse its effects. Um, once it's been approved. Uh, so it's obvious what the, what the implications would be for future cases. You wouldn't be able to do this. The, it's less obvious what the implications are here, and I think that was Richard's point. Yeah. And, and let me make one point with that, too, because in the discussion of the 363, I'm going to tell you how this layman, how it, it was explained to him, and I think it's important for you to understand this if you're not an attorney. The 363 subsection is sometimes called the melting ice cube or the rotting fruit subsection. And it has that name because when it was first devised, first promulgated, the idea was that section needed to be there in the agricultural industry. Somebody goes bankrupt, you got something on the shelf, and if you don't act quick, it's going to lose its value. It's going to rot. It's going to melt. Well, this whole thing, again, has been made so corrupt that they're using that for everything. Let's do it quick. We need a reason to do it quick. There has already been one case that I'm aware of filed, as you can, if you can imagine this, the National Hockey League 
the Phoenix Coyotes are in bankruptcy. They had someone show up as a potential buyer, and he said, yeah, I'll take the team, but I want it if it's done within 30 days. Guess what they cited? The Chrysler, the Chrysler priority, the Chrysler precedent. I mean, this stuff isn't like someday, maybe 15 years in the future, it's going to be a precedent. It's already happening. The court has to decide whether a melting ice cube is really an ice cube or whether or not they're continuing to allow to go in the side door of bankruptcy as opposed to use the front door, the main door, which is what Chapter 11 was supposed to be. Did I get that close? Yeah. Okay. We have time for one last question. Here we go. Right here. Second row. Bonner Cohen, National Center for Public Policy Research. Assuming that uh, there is a change of administrations in Washington in the not too distant future, at least we can hope that, um, how best can the U.S. government divest itself and, by extension, the American taxpayers from Chrysler and General Motors? There's a great question. Um, I was having the discussion with Governor Daniels the other day as far as what the future of Chrysler will be, you know. Will they survive? And pretty quickly you come to the conclusion, well, just like secured creditor has been redefined, probably survive has been redefined. Do I think Chrysler will be able to make cars of such volume that are in such demand that they can charge enough that they will make a profit in the traditional sense? I don't see that in in a long, long time in the future. Do I see Chrysler going away where people aren't going to be employed and they're going to be building cars? I don't see that either. You know, the Amtrak experiment started, I think, in 1967, and it had the outrageous sum of $400 million they put into Amtrak to bail it out. $60 billion later, we're still bailing. And I fear that the extraction technique isn't there. And I hope if there's a change of administration, somebody's going to have to bite the bullet really, really hard because that is purely a political decision now. It's no longer a financial decision. It's not a decision of free market capitalism. I'll just add to that that uh, I think the government involvement is built into this deal even more deeply than Richard has suggested. One of the things that really struck me about the deal is – Fiat's share of the stock of new Chrysler goes up if it produces a green car within a specified period of time. And so this deal is structured around U.S. auto policy, and I I think the government intertwining with Chrysler is, in the near future, at least as long as we have this administration, it's with us. We're not going to get rid of it. On that optimistic note, we will uh, stop. The program is over, but please join us for lunch and sandwiches upstairs and help me thank our guests. Excellent.